Chapter forty five, part three of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter forty five, part three. As Barrington descended from the pulpit and walked back to his accustomed seat, a loud shout of applause burst from a few men in the crowd, who stood up and waved their caps and cheered again and again. When order was restored, Philpot rose and addressed the meeting. Is there any gentleman who would like to ask the speaker a question? No one spoke, and the chairman again put the question without obtaining any response. But at length one of the new hands who had been taken on about a week previously to replace another painter who had been sacked for being too slow, stood up and said there was one point that he would like a little more information about. This man had two patches on the seat of his trousers, which were also very much frayed and ragged at the bottoms of the legs. The lining of his coat was all in rags, as were also the bottoms of the sleeves. His boots were old and had been many times mended and patched. The sole of one of them had begun to separate from the upper, and he had sewn these parts together with a few stitches of copper wire. He had been out of employment for several weeks, and it was evident from the pinched expression of his still haggard face that during that time he had not had sufficient to eat. This man was not a drunkard, neither was he one of those semi-mythical persons who are too lazy to work. He was married and had several children. One of them, a boy of fourteen years old, earned five shillings a week as a light porter at a grocer's. Being a householder, the man had a vote but he had never hitherto taken much interest in what he called politics. In his opinion, those matters were not for the likes of him. He believed in leaving such difficult subjects to be dealt with by his betters. In his present unhappy condition he was a walking testimonial to the wisdom and virtue and benevolence of those same betters, who have hitherto managed the affairs of the world with results so very satisfactory for themselves. "'I should like to ask the speaker,' he said. Suppose that all this that he talks about is done, what's to become of the king and the royal family and all the big pots? Hear, hear! cried Crass eagerly, and Ned Dawson and the man behind the moat both said that that's what they would like to know too. Now I am much more concerned about what's to become of ourselves if these things are not done, said Barrington. I think we should try to cultivate a little more respect of our own families and to concern ourselves a little less about royal families. I fail to see any reason why we should worry ourselves about these people. They're all right, they have all they need, and, as far as I'm aware, nobody wishes to harm them, and they're well able to look after themselves. They will fare the same as the other rich people." "'I should like to ask,' said Harlow, "'what's to become of all the gold and silver and copper money? Wouldn't it be of no use at all?' "'It would be of far more use under socialism than it is at present. The state would, of course, become possessed of a large quantity of it in the early stages of the development of the socialist system, because at first, while the state would be paying all its officers and productive workers in paper, the rest of the community, those not in the state employ, would be paying their taxes in gold as at present. All travellers on the state railways, other than state employees, would pay their fares in metal money, and gold and silver would pour into the state treasury from many other sources. The state would receive gold and silver and, for the most part, pay out paper. By the time the system of state employment was fully established, gold and silver would be only of value as metal, and the state would purchase it from whoever possessed and wished to sell it. So much per pound as raw material, instead of hiding it away in the vaults of banks or locking it up in iron safes, we shall make use of it. 
Some of the gold will be manufactured into articles of jewellery, to be sold for paper money, and worn by the sweethearts and wives and daughters of the workers. Some of it will be beaten out into gold leaf, to be used in the decoration of the houses of the citizens and of public buildings. As for the silver, it will be made into various articles of utility for domestic use. The workers will not then, as now, have to eat their food with poisonous lead or brass spoons and forks. We shall have these things of silver, and if there is not enough silver, we shall probably have a non-poisonous alloy of that metal. As far as I can make out, said Harlow, the paper money will be just as valuable as gold and silver is now. Well, what's to prevent artful dodgers like old Misery and Rushton saving it all up and buying and selling things with it, and so living without work? Of course, said Crass scornfully, that'd never do. Well, that's a very simple matter. Any man who lives without doing any useful work is living on the labour of others. He is robbing others of part of the results of their labour. The object of socialism is to stop this robbery, to make it impossible. So no one will be able to hoard or to accumulate the paper money, because it will be dated, and it will become worthless if it is not spent within a certain time after its issue. As for buying and selling for profit, from whom would they buy, and to whom would they sell? Well, they might buy some of the things the workers didn't want, for less than the workers paid for them, and then they could sell them again. And they'd have to sell them for less than the price charged at the national stores, and if you think about it a little, you'll see that it would not be very profitable. It would be with the object of preventing any attempts at private trading that the administration would refuse to pay compensation to private owners in a lump sum. All such compensations would be paid, as I said, in the form of a pension of so much per year. Another very effective way to prevent private trading would be to make it a criminal offence against the well-being of the community. At present many forms of business are illegal unless you take out a licence. Under socialism no one would be allowed to trade without a licence, and no licences would be issued. Wouldn't a man be allowed to save up his money if he wanted to? demanded Slime with indignation. There would be nothing to prevent a man from going without some of the things he might have if he is foolish enough to do so but he would never be able to save enough to avoid doing his share of useful service. Besides, what need would there be for anyone to save? One's old age would be provided for. No one could ever be out of employment. If one was ill, the state hospitals and medical service would be free. As for one's children, they would attend the state free schools and colleges, and when of age, they would enter the state service, their futures provided for. Can you tell us why anyone would need or wish to save? Slime couldn't. "'Are there any more questions?' demanded Philpot. "'While we are speaking of money,' added Barrington, "'I should like to remind you that even under the present system "'there are many things which cost money to maintain, "'that we enjoy without having to pay for directly. "'The public roads and pavements cost money to make and maintain and light. "'So do the parks, museums and bridges, but they are free to all. "'Under a socialist administration this principle would be extended.' In addition to the free services we enjoy now, we shall then maintain the trains and railways for the use of the public, free, and as time goes on this method of doing business will be adopted in many other directions. I've read somewhere, said Harlow, that whenever a government in any country has started issuing paper money, it has always led to bankruptcy. How do you know the same thing would not happen under a socialist administration? Here, there, said Crass, I was just going to say the same thing. If the government of a country began to issue a large amount of paper money under the present system, Barrington replied, it would inevitably lead to bankruptcy, for the simple reason that paper money under the present system, bank notes, bank drafts, postal orders, cheques or any other form, 
is merely a printed promise to pay the amount, in gold or silver, on demand or at a certain date. Under the present system, if a government issues more paper money than it possesses gold and silver to redeem, it is, of course, bankrupt. But the paper money that will be issued under a socialist administration will not be a promise to pay in gold or silver on demand or at any time. It will be a promise to supply commodities to the amount specified on the note. And, as there could be no dearth of those things, there could be no possibility of bankruptcy. "'I should like to know who's going to appoint the officers of this industrial army,' said the man on the pail. "'We don't want to be bullied and chivied and chased about by a lot of sergeants and corporals like a lot of soldiers, you know.' "'Here, there, said Crass. "'You must have some masters. Someone's got to be in charge of the work.' "'We don't have to put up with any bullying or chivying or chasing now, do we?' said Barrington. "'So, of course, we could not have anything of that sort under socialism. We could not put up with it at all.' even if it were only for four or five hours a day. Under the present system we have no voice in appointing our masters and overseers and foremen. We have no choice as to what masters we shall work under. If our masters do not treat us fairly, we have no remedy against them. Under socialism it will be different. The workers will be part of the community, the officers or managers and foremen will be servants of the community, and if any one of these men were to abuse his position, he could be promptly removed. As for the details of the organisation of an industrial army, the difficulty is, again, not so much to devise a way, but to decide which of the many ways would be the best, and the perfect way will probably be developed only after experiment and experience. The one thing we have to hold fast to is the fundamental principle of state employment or national service. Production for use and not for profit. The national organisation of industry under democratic control. One way of arranging this business would be for the community to elect a parliament, in much the same way as is done at present, the only persons eligible for election to be veterans of the industrial army, men and women who would put in their twenty-five years of service. This administrative body would have control of the different state departments. There would be a department of agriculture, a department of railways, and so on, each with its minister and staff. All these members of Parliament would be relatives, in some cases the mothers and fathers of those in industrial service, and they would be relied upon to see that the conditions of that service were the best possible. As for the different branches of the state service, they would be organised on somewhat the same lines as the different branches of the public service are now, like the Navy and the Post Office and the State Railways in some other countries, or as different branches of the military army, with the difference that all promotions would be from the ranks by examinations and by merit only. As every recruit will have had the same class of education, they will all have absolute equality of opportunity, and the men who would attain to positions of authority would be the best men, and not, as at present, the worst. "'How do you make that out?' demanded Crass. "'Well, under the present system, the men who become masters and employers succeed because they are cunning and selfish, not because they understand or are capable of doing the work out of which they make their money. Most of the employers in the building trade, for instance, would be incapable of doing any skilled work. Very few of them would be worth their salt as a journeyman. The only work they do is to scheme and to reap the benefit of the labour of others. The men who now become managers and foremen are selected not because of their ability as craftsmen, but because they are good slave-drivers and useful producers of profit for their employers. How are you going to prevent the selfish and the cunning, as you call them, from getting on top then as they do now? said Harlow. 
there was the fact that all the workers will receive the same pay no matter what class of work they are engaged in or what their position will ensure our getting the very best man to do all the higher work and to organize our business crass laughed what everybody gets the same wages yes there will be such an enormous quantity of everything produced that their wages will enable everyone to purchase abundance of everything they require even if some were paid more money than others they would not be able to spend it there would be no need to save it and as there would be no starving poor there would be no one to give it away to if it were possible to save and accumulate money it would bring into being an idle class living on their fellows it would lead to the downfall of our system and the return to the same anarchy that exists at present Besides, if higher wages were paid to those engaged in the higher work or occupying positions of authority, it would prevent our getting the best men. Unfit persons would try for the positions because of the higher pay. That is what happens now. Under the present system, men intrigue for and obtain or are pitchforked into positions for which they have no natural ability at all. The only reason they desire these positions is because of the salaries attached to them. These fellows get the money and the work is done by underpaid subordinates whom the world never hears of. Under socialism this money incentive will be done away with, and consequently the only men who will try for these positions will be those who, being naturally fitted for the work, would like to do it. For instance, a man who is a born organiser will not refuse to undertake such work, because he will not be paid more for it. Such a man will desire to do it, and will esteem it a privilege to be allowed to do it. He will revel in it to think out all the details of some undertaking to plan and scheme and organize is not work for a man like that it's a pleasure but for a man who has sought and secured such a position not because he liked the work but because he liked the salary such work as this would be unpleasant labor under socialism the unfit man would not apply for that post but would strive after some other for which he was fit and which he would therefore desire and enjoy there are some men who would rather have charge of and organize and be responsible for work than to do it with their hands there are others who would rather do delicate or difficult or artistic work than plain work a man who was a born artist would rather paint a frieze or a picture or carve a statue than he would do plain work or take charge of and direct the labor of others and there are another sort of men who would rather do ordinary plain work than take charge or attempt higher branches for which they have neither liking or natural talent but there is one thing, a most important point that you seem to entirely lose sight of, and that is that all these different kinds and classes are equal in one respect. They are all equally necessary. Each is a necessary and indispensable part of the whole. Therefore, everyone who has done his full share of necessary work is justly entitled to a full share of the results. The men who puts the slates on are just as indispensable as the men who lay the foundations. The work of the men who build the walls and make the doors is just as necessary as the work of the men who decorate the cornice. None of them would be of much use without the architect, and the plans of the architect would come to nothing, his building would be a mere castle in the air, if it were not for the workers. Each part of the work is equally necessary, useful, and indispensable if the building is to be perfected. Some of these men work harder with their brains than with their hands, and some work harder with their hands than with their brains but each one does his full share of the work. This truth will be recognized and acted upon by those who build up and maintain the fabric of our cooperative commonwealth. Every man who does his full share of the useful and necessary work according to his abilities shall have his full share of the total result. Herein will be its great difference from the present system, under which it is possible for the cunning and selfish ones to take advantage of the simplicity of others and rob them of part of the fruits of their labor. 
as for those who will be engaged in the higher branches they will be sufficiently rewarded by being privileged to do the work they are fitted for and enjoy the only men and women who are capable of good and great work of any kind are those who being naturally fit for it love the work for its own sake and not for the money it brings them under the present system many men who have no need of money produce great works not for gain but for pleasure their wealth enables them to follow their natural inclinations under the present system many men and women capable of great works are prevented from giving expression to their powers by poverty and lack of opportunity they live in sorrow and die heartbroken and the community is the loser these are the men and women who will be our artists sculptors architects engineers and captains of industry under the present system there are men at the head of affairs whose only object is the accumulation of money some of them possess great abilities and the system has practically compelled them to employ those abilities for their own selfish ends to the hurt of the community some of them have built up great fortunes out of the sweat and blood and tears of men and women and little children for those who delight in such work as this there will be no place in our cooperative commonwealth is there any more questions demanded philpot yes said harlow if there won't be no extra pay and if anybody will have all they need for just doing their part of the work what encouragement will there be for anyone to worry his brains about trying to invent some new machine or to make some new discovery well said barrington i think that's covered by the last answer but if it were found necessary which is highly improbable to offer some material reward in addition to the respect esteem or honour that would be enjoyed by the author of an invention that was to be a boon to the community it could be arranged by allowing him to retire before the expiration of his twenty-five years service the boon he had conferred upon the community by the invention would be considered equivalent to so many years work but a man like that would not desire to cease working that sort go on working all their lives for love there's Edison, for instance. He's one of the very few inventors who have made money out of their work. He's a rich man. But the only use his wealth seems to be to him is to procure himself facilities for going on with his work. His life is a round of what some people would call painful labour, but it's not painful labour to him. It's just pleasure. He works for the love of it. Another way would be to absolve a man of that sort from the necessity of ordinary work, so as to give him a chance to get on with other inventions. It would be to the best interests of the community to encourage him in every way, and to place materials and facilities at his disposal. But you must remember that even under the present system, honour and praise are held to be greater than money. How many soldiers would prefer money to the honour of wearing the intrinsically valueless Victoria Cross? Even now men think less of money than they do of the respect, esteem or honour that they are able to procure with it. Many men spend the greater part of their lives striving to accumulate money and when they have succeeded they proceed to spend it to obtain the respect of their fellow-men some of them spend thousands of pounds for the honour of being able to write m p after their names others buy titles others pay huge sums to gain admission to exclusive circles of society others give the money away in charity or found libraries or universities the reason they do these things is that they desire to be applauded and honoured by their fellow-men this desire is strongest in the most capable men the men of genius therefore under socialism the principal incentive to great work will be the same as now honour and praise but under the present system honour and praise can be bought with money and it does not matter much how the money was obtained under socialism it would be different the cross of honour and the laurel cross will not be bought and sold for filthy lucre 
they would be supreme rewards of virtue and of talent. "'Anyone else like to be flattened out?' inquired Philpot. "'What would you do with them that spends all their money in drink?' asked Slime. "'I might reasonably ask you, what's done with them, or what do you propose to do with them now?' There are many men and women whose lives are so full of toil and sorrow and the misery caused by abject poverty, who are so shut out from all that makes life worth living, that the time they spend in the public houses is the only ray of sunshine in their cheerless lives. Their mental and material poverty is so great that they are deprived of and incapable of understanding the intellectual and social pleasures of civilization. Under socialism there will be no such class as this. Everyone will be educated and social life and rational pleasure will be within the reach of all. Therefore we do not believe that there will be such a class. Any individuals who abandon themselves to such a course would be avoided by their fellows. But if they became very degraded, we should still remember that they were our brother men and women, and we would regard them as suffering from a disease inherited from their uncivilized forefathers, and try to cure them by placing them under some restraint, in an institute, for instance. "'Another good way to deal with them,' said Harlow, would be to allow them double pay, so as they could drink themselves to death. We could do without the likes of them. "'Call the next case,' said Philpot. "'This here abundance that you're always talking about,' said Crass. "'You can't be sure that it would be possible to produce all that. You're only assuming that it could be done.' Barrington pointed to the still visible outlines of the oblong that Owen had drawn on the wall to illustrate a previous lecture. Even under the present silly system of restricted production, with the majority of the population engaged in useless, unproductive, unnecessary work, and large numbers never doing any work at all, there is enough produced to go all round after a fashion. More than enough, for in consequence of what they call overproduction, the markets are periodically glutted with commodities of all kinds, and then for a time the factories are closed and production ceased. And yet we can all manage to exist after a fashion. This proves that if productive industry were organised on the lines advocated by socialists, there could be produced such a prodigious quantity of everything that everyone could live in plenty and comfort. The problem of how to produce sufficient for all to enjoy abundance is already solved. The problem that then remains is how to get rid of those whose greed and callous indifference to the suffering of others prevents it being done. "'Yeah, and you'll never be able to get rid of them, mate!' cried Crass triumphantly, and the man with the copper-wire stitches in his boot said that it couldn't be done. "'Well, we mean to have a good try, anyhow,' said Barrington. Crass and most of the others tried hard to think of something to say in defence of the existing state of affairs, or against the proposals put forward by the lecturer, but, finding nothing, they maintained a sullen and gloomy silence. The man with the copper-wire stitches in his boot in particular appeared to be very much upset. Perhaps he was afraid that if the things advocated by the speaker ever came to pass, he would not have any boots at all. To assume that he had some such thoughts as this is the only rational way to account for his hostility, for in his case no change could have been made for the worse unless it reduced him to almost absolute nakedness and starvation. To judge by their unwillingness to consider any proposals to alter the present system, one might have supposed that they were afraid of losing something, instead of having nothing to lose except their poverty. End of chapter 45, part 3